You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. For more audio and video, please subscribe to the Culture and Anarchy podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And make sure to check out our YouTube channel. Follow me by my Twitter handle, at anarchy underscore culture. And please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com. If you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list, you'll receive access to free ebooks, including the text with scholarly references to our recent eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, a critique of new atheism, secular statism. And keep an eye out for our upcoming poetry newsletter, The Dial, which serves a libertarian, anarchist, and modern transcendentalist intellectual. We are now accepting poetry submissions and short critical and literary essays. Please see our website at www.culture-anarchy.com for more information. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents The Spirit of Market Anarchy, a critique of new atheism, secular statism, by Morgan A. Brown. Part 3 The Secular Origins Myth versus Laissez Faire. Section 1 An Epistemological Problem of Historical Interpretation. Given that the new atheists do focus on America's secular origins when contrasting the country's history of religious prosperity against the declining state of religion in countries with either established churches or progressive secularism, it should be pointed out that the new atheists tend to cherry-pick facts from American history when establishing the secular foundation of America as ground for their criticisms. As the new atheists see things, America is becoming more religious and more politically oriented in religious activism, or at least, not declining at a quick rate, as a symptom of the decline of secularism as a governmental principle. The secular origins myth places too much focus upon contemporary interpretations of the Constitution, buttressed by a federalist nationalism, and leans too much upon the theory behind the church-state separation as against its actual implementation. Whether or not the American government ever was or still is secular very much depends upon the definition of government. Namely, are we speaking about federal or state government? Even then, we cannot speak in the abstract. Are we speaking about the tension between state and federal governments as enumerated in the Constitution as it was in 1789, 1865, or the 20th century? or of the particular terms for religious exercise enumerated by particular state governments in actual state constitutions. And in the case of America, can a federal constitution mean anything without reference to competing state constitutions? Is it the United or the States in the United States that is to hold priority? It is not a small thing that one notes when identifying the grammatical inconsistency of The United States is a great nation. That statement cannot be both grammatically and factually correct, ever. Perhaps the United States are a group of states that agree to join together as a federation, which is great, but never the United States is. The grammaticality of the United States is 
is a political grammaticality, not a logical one. Perhaps individuals as diverse as Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Bertrand Russell were not as savvy to constitutional questions because America was their adopted nation, and they tended to equate the national government with British parliamentarianism. I suspect this is so, and that democratic government was to them pretty much one and the same as long as it was Western. The secular origins myth's strongest proponents are blinded by a couple of presuppositions that do not have a very strong factual basis, and to root out the errors to get a better picture of the problems that we face today, a little economic revision is in order. Getting a clear picture of the history of the church-state separation in America requires principles of government, theories of human interaction and association, deep historical analysis, and economic honesty. Proponents of the secular origins myth assume too quickly that the disestablishment of churches was a uniform phenomenon when they ought to say that the establishment and free exercise clauses were a landmark feature of the proposed 1789 central government. The central government was only a compact designed to regulate the joint enterprises of the various states, who ruled through their own state constitutions. This is not the government that currently exists, for the simple fact that the Civil War and the 14th Amendment forever altered the design and scope of governance. The Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses originally protected American citizens from established religion only on the federal level and only through the legislature. And one could very easily make the case that the original inclusion of those clauses in the Bill of Rights was passed in order to protect the diversity of established religion at the state level. Because the secular origins myth has a strong cult following amongst atheists and religionists, I think it is a myth worth exploring. What we shall find in any political or economic analysis of the history of the First Amendment and the Articles of Confederation is that religious freedom on a national level within a federation of states creates, one, a national policy of laissez-faire and a free market in religious services regardless of the social contract at play, and two, no special provision for the disestablishment of churches or the free exercise of religion in and of itself without an article for the active incorporation of the First Amendment to the states through coercive federal monopoly. Active incorporation was not established as a constitutional principle prior to the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868. Until then, the First Amendment only applied on the federal level, as a rule binding the interactions of the individual states in their joint operations, and not at the individual state level. While already established churches in the states remained unaffected by the Bill of Rights, a national policy of laissez-faire set the standard for idyllic religious toleration of individual state policies. There was no secular policy in place, such that it was proactively enforced by the federal government. There was, in fact, no policy in place whatsoever, except for the policies officiated and proposed by individual states. While one could class this lack of federal policy as secular by denotation, it is more precisely the denotation of the economic principle of laissez-faire, because nobody can enforce a lack of law. One simply lets the market alone. In a federalist social contract, the central government allowed the state to decide how they would oppress their citizens. 
Since the federal contract only bound the joint actions of the states and regulated their legal actions against one another as political entities, the United States was in no way a laic state, such that it was founded in secularism. And for the dissenter living under the Puritan theocracy in colonial Massachusetts, or under the Congregationalist establishment that was only abolished in 1833, and which levied religious taxes and demanded church attendance by penalty of law, what sense would it make to argue that America had no established religion because of the First Amendment enshrined in 1789? America is a landmass, and Americans inhabit that landmass. Americans, as defined by statute and legislation as a people bound by the Constitution of the United States of America, are citizens of a government that makes pretensions to monopolistic authority over a given portion of that landmass. There is no evidence that anyone on that landmass actively supports the Constitution and its government's actions, and is not, instead, weathering a long train of abuses that have yet to be cast off. Recent presidential and midterm elections have made it quite clear that Americans do not support the government and are voting simply to stave off the tyranny of rival parties. This is no mere semantic wordplay. Sloppy definitions lead to slogans that do not have a factual grounding, and it appears to be impossible to recognize American secularism in any of these cases where rival religious sects actually propose and defend a creeping establishment of religion or secularism. The federal government did not establish religion, but the American continent did feature state constitutions with powerful religious establishments, taxes, and tests. Tests that lasted until 1965. All of the people ruled by the monopoly churches were citizens of the United States, and thus were not ruled by anything founded in secularism. The constitution provided an arrangement in which, if religion was to tyrannize at all, it could only tyrannize at the state and local levels, and no further. If the states declined to tyrannize upon the subject of religious opinion, then market anarchy reigned supreme, and liberty was fully achieved in an unhampered market. Generally, those who see the First Amendment as a secular provision in the Constitution tend to argue that the existence of state monopolies and religious exercise, which were monopolies that regulate the consumption and distribution of religious ideas, in no way suggests that we, as we the people of the United States, had established religion. And in this they are correct. But if we the people of the United States includes the dissenter living in Massachusetts prior to 1833, and it seems that it does, then the objection betrays a simple truth. The First Amendment only applied on a national level and not on a state level. And that the we in Massachusetts did not share the same freedoms as the we in we the people of the United States. What Massachusetts required to achieve the same liberty was the abolition of state controls and regulations. In other words, laissez-faire is the only consistent principle of liberty of conscience. So the first thing we must abandon in a serious study of the First Amendment is the nationalistic pride that we have in American exceptionalism. We must also abandon denotations of freedom that are rooted in strictly constitutional government. Freedom, we see, was found only when government unilaterally declined to coerce its citizens. It was not found in government itself. It is commonly believed that the we in the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America is pretty much the same we who supported and drafted the Constitution, but not the we who opposed it. And yet, by force of the coercive monopoly proposed by the Constitution, that we is all-inclusive even though in reality, 
it is and was not supported by everyone. That we is a piece of propaganda, even if we tend to like its phrasing, and even should it give us warm feelings inside that infuse us with patriotic zeal. I myself often get a very warm and patriotic feeling in my gut when I read it or hear that we. This does not make the statement more or less true that we are the we and we the people. Congress could make no law regarding the establishment or free exercise of religion, but state legislatures were entirely free to ignore the Bill of Rights. For example, the continuation of slavery via varying state definitions of property or the establishment of state churches. Even more recently, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF, discovered in the Supreme Court case of Hine versus the Freedom From Religion Foundation, 2007, that innovations in constitutional interpretation and the rule of precedent by the Supreme Court and the President of the United States could have just as dire consequences for the secular taxpayer. In 2001, President George W. Bush signed an executive order into law to create the White House Faith-Based and Community Initiative, which featured, amongst its stated objectives, the mission to make it easier for religious organizations to obtain federal grants for community works, and a push for federal encouragement of faith-based organizations to spread their services through public education outlets. After the FFRF challenged the Bush administration's executive order to publicly fund faith-based initiatives, which included a directive to install offices for religious administration in the executive office and would result in taxpayer funds being channeled to religious ends, the Supreme Court ruled that citizens of the country do not even retain the right to challenge the constitutionality of the executive branch's religious orders, even if the programs in which religious officers may participate are supported by taxes. After all, the executive may fund religious initiatives without any law to guide her hand, and executive orders, so much lauded by the political establishment since the days of Lincoln, as a way of effecting change in the laws of the land with the stroke of a pen whilst bypassing Congress, need not involve Congress and the explicit limit upon legislative power to make no law regarding religious establishment. The executive is not the legislature, and so is not bound by that amendment. Thanks to the rise of a non-religious political means, the executive order, the separation of church and state has met its first significant circumvention in our era, and one that is upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. What the new atheists are really seeing in contemporary America's religious political drive is an adjustment period in which an ever-centralizing federal government, with unprecedented executive powers and a judicial dictatorship, is making waves with every subsequent ruling involving the incorporation of the First Amendment through the democratic provisions of the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868. And much to the detriment of secular peoples, those same secular peoples keep turning to an ever-larger federal government to enact more policies to swell its regulatory reach. The executive order, in the same way, can now be used to fund unlimited wars without congressional declarations of war, to circumvent the same immigration laws that the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, was created to administer, and even to install religious offices in its state departments. With the principles of states' rights and nullification in severe decline since the days of the Civil War and Jim Crow, there is no popular means for an ideological pushback against the assertion of arbitrary executive policies from within the now-existing social contract. The fact that states' rights and nullification 
were used to justify abuses first established by the Constitution does not, in fact, undermine their utility. In fact, those principles are means by which a people facing tyranny may undermine the abuses of the Constitution, and not the other way around. While the good and docile citizens of the United States will try to find a way to rationalize the conflict over religion and secularism in a positive manner for both citizen and government, it is not clear that the United States exists in order to maintain a positive relationship between the citizen and his government. Was that ever the case? Was it the case in 1776? Would a slave have objected to the Three-Fifths Compromise? We know that plenty of abolitionists did in fact object that compromise and objected to the Constitution as well. One more sacred cow of naive historical analysis must fall under the knife. The history of the United States is not a history of endless improvement and progress. It is a history of conflicts between private citizens and state governments, between rival state governments, between state and federal governments, and between private citizens and the federal government. While new atheists tend to make the religious right its primary target while outlining the progress of the human condition in America, the faith-based initiative order has not proven to be a strictly partisan issue. Barack Obama expanded the role of Bush's order and geared the religious office's mission towards issues of poverty and social justice as if the president were attempting to make it a Catholic directive. And this change in mission reflects the sad truth that religious establishment has bipartisan support and is adaptable to regime changes when once in power, especially when protected by progressives who view increased power in the state as the surest means to increase socialism in America. A bipartisan middle way between religious freedom and tax-based programs is not a middle way at all. It is only a tax-based religious program with no congressional law to bind it, and the program is socialistic in design and enforced through arbitrary executive power. The federally sanctioned faith-based initiative thus stands in direct conflict with the trend of religious freedom that developed throughout the history of the United States, and even then, the executive-based movement for religious establishment on the federal level represents an innovation in the subversion of the free exercise of religion insofar as religious establishment has subverted free exercise throughout the history of the United States in various states. The state continually moves away from its former policy of laissez-faire, and so is caught up in the minutiae of Supreme Court legalese as it seeks to completely democratize legal statutes by enforcing negative prescriptions. The state now attempts to rationalize how it can incorporate laws in order to ensure that Congress make no law regarding the establishment of religion. Furthermore, the preeminence of the contemporary executive order, which trivializes the legislative process, also threatens the only protection that the Constitution provides against religious establishment when we define establishment as funded by taxpayers. If these new chaplains of commerce and faith-based offices are not tied to a church that is promoted institutionally by the state per se, and if those ministers are servants of the bureaucracy, then they only serve a vague religiosity in the eyes of the state, not an established institution or denomination. Taxpayers may disagree, but the democratic mobocracy rules out their dissent, guided by love of progressive increases in state power, a simple belief that democracy is good and not a drive towards chaos and violence, and that the handouts obtained through intersubjective thievery, the robbing hood welfare state, are good. The Supreme Court sets down a series of dangerous precedents that will haunt us going forward. We can no longer challenge the constitutionality of religious establishment if a president is in favor of faith-based policies. 
The increased federalization of American government since the Civil War on the federal and state levels has changed the terms of contractual government, insofar as that government was ever contracted in the first place by the first generation of legislatures who overthrew the American government in 1789 by secret cabal through a secret vote and against the orders of their states and the explicit powers allotted to those conspirators by the then-binding Articles of Confederation. Yet another sacred cow just breathed its last. If the people of the United States were not bound by the Articles of Confederation, which were supposed to be perpetually binding, then how could they ever be bound by the indivisible union through the Constitution? They could only be bound to that union by consent, and the Constitution was not ratified with anything approaching consensus. A great many citizens had no voting rights, and a great many citizens with voting rights voted against the Constitution. While the Bill of Rights is seen as a vital addendum to the social contract to limit the power of the federal government, what is neglected in this messianic treatment of the Bill of Rights is that the Constitution required sufficient propaganda in the name of strict construction and checks and balances because its ratification marked an enormous increase in the power of the central government and thus had the potential to wipe out traditional American liberties en masse. The Princeton historian Calvin Johnson in his quite savvy treatment of the Bill of Rights, suggests that the amendments were best understood in historical context as a symbol or sop with little substantive meaning, since the most pressing need for the states at the time was to restore the federal credit, accomplished with new federal taxes. While I agree with Johnson's economic analyses, I partly disagree with him where it concerns the value of the Bill of Rights. As principles, the first ten amendments were indeed symbolic, and whether or not those principles meant anything substantive or legally binding upon the states goes beyond verbal formulation and their utility to inform and guide a distinctly American culture at the time in the original collective bargaining process between state monopolies and the federal monopoly that formed the Constitution. The freedom of the press states that the government will not regulate the press, and insofar as it positively states a negative principle, the state will not do this thing. The Bill of Rights was the embodiment of laissez-faire, and thus tied the American fortune to sound economic principles, even if the government was going to pursue, during Hamilton's central banking era, Lincoln's confiscatory and inflationary era, and post-Wilsonian planned economies, unsound economic practices at odds with the Bill of Rights. Though laissez-faire is still not generally practiced in America, especially after the libercidal progressive trend of the 20th century in its bloody wars, destructive inflation, and skyrocketing taxation, it does at least provide an institutional red line by which we can judge the willy-nilly crossing of that red line by the federal and state governments. The Bill of Rights forces us to, in some limited degree, always confront logical economics when discussing the powers of government. This is a small victory, in some moral sense at least, even if it does not safeguard the liberty of Americans themselves. Every ripple emanating from Supreme Court rulings that interfere with these negative prescriptions introduces new problems. State definitions of marriage, grants of tax exemptions, and the socialization of education are under review, and market alternatives now face a period of vast uncertainty. For example, the church's marriage rights, which have been married to state marriage licensing for half a century, in the face of gay marriages legalization and regulation, tax exemptions for nonprofits, the funding of Planned Parenthood, etc. In effect, 
The First Amendment is over two centuries old, but its progressive implementation is an ongoing process because the incorporation of the 14th Amendment allows the central government to step over that red line drawn by the Bill of Rights. Legal innovations in market regulations create conflicts for the central government that were avoided by the pre-Civil War Constitution and the short-lived Articles of Confederation. Though church incomes had been regulated by individual states, the incomes of religious institutions were never a question of federal policy until the ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913, which enshrined the progressive income tax. In part three of this discussion, I will attempt to canvas the history of the First Amendment and the triumph of religious pluralism, not through political precedent, for example, the secular constitution, but instead through the free market, for example, the no-law market anarchy in the clause stipulating that Congress shall make no law. Section 2. How some listeners' abhorrence of the historical role played by states' rights will only support my argument. In passing the subject of the Civil War, I must indulge myself in a small digression. Libertarian arguments are foreign to some auditors, and so they tend to be a subject of much misunderstanding. Since I have addressed this work primarily to atheists, and particularly to the supporters of new atheism, I cannot assume that my listeners will have some in-depth familiarity with free market principles. I fully understand that any espousal of an alternative interpretation of history that briefly criticizes the Civil War in passing will run into the wall of slavery and the post-Reconstruction racial caste system. It will be objected that an espousal of pre-Civil War constitutional principles, state sovereignty and nullification, defends governmental principles that protected institutionalized slavery, Jim Crow, and the segregation of public schools. Ignoring that the racial caste system was codified by state and federal law, I would go even further than the apologist for the progressive quibble. Slaveholding states within the United States could never have upheld slavery without the complicity of non-slaveholding states, and no state could uphold slavery without state force, the enshrinement of injustice through positive law, and a denial of self-ownership as the fundamental property right. Jim Crow was a body of state regulations regarding human interaction and exchange, and was the attempt by southern states to regulate the economy in such a way that it would partition services both provided by and provided two different races. After the Civil War, several northern states attempted similar measures by ratifying black codes, which prevented and restricted the northward migration of blacks. But the federal government and the Supreme Court weighed in on these issues. The federal government made sure that the Interstate Commerce Commission oversaw compliance with Jim Crow railcar segregation on interstate itineraries, even when the trains were delinquent in following racist laws where they explicitly did not wish to prolong travel by stopping at the border of Jim Crow states to segregate the cars in compliance with southern state laws. The Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson came to two horrendous conclusions. One, that there could be both separate and equal services, an economic impossibility since equality of value is not even thinkable and is a remnant of medieval thinking in economics, and two, that there can be an arbitrarily chosen fractional definition of race, one-eighth heredity or sometimes one drop, established by law, which created a normative racial caste system. Participants in the economy, both white and black, who objected to this body of laws or failed to perform according to expectation, were punished by those laws, 
and the federal government involved itself in this issue on the national level in order to correct its prior interventions and the horrendous judicial precedents regarding the regulation of race relations and the abuses of self-ownership and private property. Jim Crow punished businesses, increased running costs, and actually ran out of business anyone incapable of providing those services. Even under Jim Crow, the federal government enshrined its support in separate but equal rulings that allowed active government intervention in the marketplace to benefit one racial caste above another. It is not states' rights and nullification that are problematic. The Constitution itself and its presumption of voluntary contract principles in what was actually a collective bargaining process that overruled voluntary contract is the problem. The Constitution could not and did not allow the market to operate for the integration of the economic interests of all races, either out of enlightenment or convenience, on their own terms, established in private contract, judicial review, federal regulation of conflicting state positions on race, and oppressive state constitutions, all combined into a perfect chaos of public policy and racial preference. But since the Constitution both is and was, let us address the first problem. The United States should never have included the slaveholding states in the Union if those states were not committed to the principles of individual liberty. This libertarian objection to the Constitution does, I believe, even touch upon the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses, since the objection cuts to the quick and identifies a gross failing in the Constitution and philosophical justifications of a social contract. If a union was to be held above individual liberty, then abolitionist states should never have agreed to it. The admission that the complete union of the colonies is preferable to individual liberty, which the progressive historian is apt to assume when criticizing slavery and upholding the Constitution, which did not include women's rights, the freedom of Native American corporations, tribes, and the abolition of slavery, as a legally binding document for all generations of Americans, is absolutely unjustifiable by principle or theory in an examination of liberty. And I would go further and query. If individual liberty, as outlined in the preamble, was not the objective of a union that enshrined the three-fifths compromise and neglective women's rights, much less universal white male suffrage, then it remains to be determined what that objective of union was and why union was the objective in the first place. The Constitution certainly benefited some people more than others. Before the reader objects to this proposal on patriotic grounds, he must ask himself if he would. If the three-fifths compromise and the neglect of women's rights were provided by its precepts, sign the Constitution of 1789 today. Or if he would object that some important considerations must be taken into effect before he would sign. Almost nobody of a libertarian temper would sign that document. Certainly, very few women and non-whites would sign it. A good many principled white men, nearly all, would also refuse, I should think. Common decency would prevent us from praising the Constitution's perfection over much, as we looked out over our own town square and saw some slaves being hemmed in by gun-toting slave masters, and we would likely think of burning the Constitution as reprobate as we watched some puffed-up government official exercising his sacred duty to determine how many delegates would be provided to our home state based on the headcount he was busy tallying up as he walked up and down the line of slaves in the square. Section 3. Sovereign Debt Crises and Their Role in Overthrowing the Articles of Confederation by Secret Cabal 
One of the primary objectives for the Constitution was the resolution of the Revolutionary War debt and a plan for a nationwide default on state obligations that protected the government from the ire of its creditors, taxpayers, and debtors, bondholders. An analysis of the Constitution through the lens of government debts will have much to say about the First Amendment. Some readers who will object to the rather unpatriotic analysis that follows will argue that the Founding Fathers predated the rise of economic theory and that, in their ignorance, they could not be counted complicit in conspiracies to cheat the public if they did not understand the complexities of finance and monetary theory. Adam Smith's opus, published in 1776, had not had sufficient time to school these poor men in economic science. This I reject outright. For many of the Founding Fathers profited personally by their solutions for the sovereign debt crisis and worried that their solutions would precipitate universal disorder and rebellion if the common man ever caught wind of the cheat. Some men did catch wind of the cheat, and in fact rebelled by force of arms, but usually without firing a shot against government aggressors. Self-interest, or the relief of felt uneasiness, which is the microeconomic principle guiding human action, presupposes a priori at least some familiarity with the basics of economics, even if the complexities of fiat paper currency and inflation were not well known as economic phenomena. Most economic historians have established that these phenomena were quite well known, and the acquisitive profit motive is hardwired into human action itself. Because the historical debt question is a complex issue that requires some depth of economic understanding for us today, I would like to suggest that a convenient inroad to the subject, and even to libertarian arguments against government intervention in the economy, is provided by a rather absurdist court case that resulted in the ratification of the First Amendment beyond the initial Bill of Rights. The ratification of the Eleventh Amendment in 1794 closed the chapter on the issue of the debt and open a way for the principle of sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity is a principle of state governments in the United States in which the sovereign power decides that it, a ruling oligarchy, is not legally responsible to a citizen of any state, and that it has the right to arbitrarily abridge private contracts to which it has agreed voluntarily. In other words, the state could default on its debts, either federally or as a state government, without facing privation that is, foreclosure. Thus, the original constitutional era ended much as it began, with the debate over debts and who owed what to whom. According to Calvin Johnson, the 11th Amendment granted immunity to the states from suits by creditors from the Revolutionary War and allowed the states to refuse to pay their just war debts. Not long after the Supreme Court had explicitly held that the Constitution made the war debts enforceable against the states. Payment of the war debts and anger at the states for dereliction of their duties was core to the Constitution. Enforcement of state debts, however, was not a necessary part of the purpose because it was the destitution of the federal government and not the states that was the mortal danger to the Republic. Under the Articles of Confederation, the central government did not have the power to directly tax American citizens and so had relied upon debt remissions by state governments alone. The Articles did not permit a unified oppression of Americans by the National Confederation. The states were forced to answer to their peoples for the tyrannies each of them contracted to prosecute separately as 13 distinct governmental bodies. 
the Constitution shifted the onus of imminent bankruptcy from the central government to state governments by granting sovereign immunity to the central government, and so provided a false veneer of credit stability to the federal government, since it would now prosecute public debts. The states were thrown into the light as those who could not pay their debts as soon as the federal government became the collector. And when the federal government demanded that they do so, the states went into action. That is, they used the amendment process to circumvent the judicial precedent that upheld claims of private persons and private contracts with the agents of state monopolies. As soon as the responsibility for failed promises faced admission by economic law, and as soon as the politicians feared reprisal for ripping off the American public, the politicians passed the 11th Amendment in order to protect themselves against the wrath of the people. In 1794, the fourth pillar of the Constitution, the state governments, ceded to the federal government the principle of sovereign immunity in order to pass the buck of responsibility and to shift the onus of taxation's tyranny to the federal apparatus of coercion. In the rather humorous SCOTUS case of Chisholm v. Georgia in 1793, Alexander Chisholm sued the state of Georgia regarding some unpaid debts that the state owed to an associated estate of Robert Farquhar, of which Chisholm was the executor. Chisholm demanded payment of those debts on the behalf of Farquhar's estate because in 1777 the executive council of the state of Georgia had voluntarily contracted to purchase supplies for the prosecution of war from Farquhar himself, and the debt that the state of Georgia incurred required, by contract, returns on the use of that private property through some medium of exchange at some point in the future. Farquhar had contracted to be paid in fiat paper currency, a currency with no commodity backing, with a redemption price issued by fiat, and so had a claim to whatever lay behind the fiat paper that Farquhar was supposed to have been given as a claim upon his goods, the cloth and uniforms he had sold to the state when its agents sought to purchase military supplies in the marketplace. Farquhar loaned Georgia commodities, received paper coupons in the meantime, and was promised redemption for precious metals through some debt instrument sometime in the future a note, a bond, or some other security. During the fiat paper squabbles of the 1780s, states issued state-backed currencies in order to fight the depreciation of previous issues of state-backed currencies and the endless chain of inflationary colonial script that plagued the American economy. When one form of paper money faced depreciation because too many issues threatened its market value, another paper money was issued, which was valued higher by holders of the paper money because there were fewer of the new notes in circulation as yet when compared to the previous issue. The fiat paper squabbles were truly a race to the bottom, and holders of paper money were always trying to climb the endless chain of depreciation by changing out older note issues for newer issues. In his court case, Chisholm simply wanted to get due damages out of the initial default of payment of worthless scrip of 1777 for some other scrip backed now by the states and the federal government. Farquhar wanted $169,613 in damages, approximately $3.5 million in fiat paper today, but the state of Georgia insisted that it had paid its agents the outstanding sum in order to convey to Farquhar restitution for his goods. Thus, whether or not the money actually made it to Farquhar or was stolen by the state's agents, Georgia would not pay the debt. Supreme Court Associate Justice Iridell agreed to hear this case in the state of Georgia, and the court quickly decided that the circuit court would have to dismiss the case since it did not have jurisdiction where the state of Georgia was a party. Iridell suggested that such a case would have to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court since Article 3, Section 2 granted the Supreme Court jurisdiction over the case. Chisholm took the hint and appealed to the Supreme Court. 
When the defendant in the Chisholm case, which was the Attorney General acting on behalf of the state of Georgia's representatives, did not show up to the Supreme Court hearing because the state had a belief in a state government's inherent immunity from legal proceedings that the said government did not explicitly sanction, the Supreme Court became involved in the disputation and was forced to rule in favor of Chisholm because the defendant had not shown up to court. It was decided that the states would have to pay their debts, which had originally been contracted in fiat paper currencies. A fiat paper currency is a debt obligation issued by a state that has no backing. It is a piece of paper, an IOU, which says, if you give me a commodity money right now, like gold, silver, or copper, I'll give you something later, with interest, even though I do not own anything that I can give you at that later date, much less anything in reserve beyond that nothing for which I can promise to pay interest. This, by definition, is fraud. What can the state give to the original lender if it has nothing to give? The question is nearly theological. How can the state create something out of nothing? The answer is simple. The state will take something from somebody else and then claim that it is paying off Chisholm, or Farquhar's estate, with its own property. That somebody else who gets expropriated might take issue with the state's property claims in that somebody else's property, but somebody else does not have as many guns as the state, and so gives up his property lest the state should prosecute its collection with extreme prejudice. What is particularly comical in the Chisholm case is that in no way can a state ever pay a debt without first taking the principal to be returned to the plaintiff from somebody else by force, or else from someone else's bond purchase. What is to be noted in this Ponzi scheme, however, is that every new issue of an IOU is the issue of a future confiscation to cover up for the state's lack of something that it will use to pay the victim of its confiscations to pay other victims of its confiscations. States do not have assets that they have not first confiscated, unless a public debt bondholder is to be paid off by new bond purchases in the next generation of bond purchasers. In other words, public bonds are a Ponzi scheme, a pyramid scheme, which require more bondholders in the future in order to continue paying off the original purchasers. The reason that fiat paper currencies are issued is that the state does not have anything, gold, silver, or goods, to trade for money and the state requires goods in order to achieve its goals, especially if the public bond Ponzi scheme is not generating revenue fast enough to pay interest on the bonds already issued in the scheme. If one were to forward, as many pseudo-economics professors in prestigious universities today might, that the debt obligation represented by a fiat paper medium of exchange, a money substitute or a security, is actually an example of a state asset, then one must inquire what the bond represents. If a state does not have collateral, if it has not invested the bondholder's money profitably in, say, a privately owned joint stock company so as to make a return in interest by way of dividend issues, such that it can remit a portion of interest to the bondholder and retain a small fee for brokering the transaction, then the bond cannot be repaid. The state's asset is a liability, since it is a claim upon the state's assets, But as already asserted, the state's assets are comprised of goods that it will take from the people by force, many of whom eschew bonds and higher taxation. Bonds are a claim upon loot. The public bond market, the national debt at the root of a fiat paper currency, is an investment in loot. 
Almost nobody in a free market under the rule of voluntary contract would ever engage willingly in such a bond purchase of this kind with the state acting as a stockbroker, since he can simply go to the bond seller or a real stockbroker whose trade is strictly limited to the brokering of deals and investing profitably, and who has collateral to back up his services. Imagine if the now-defunct grocery chain, A&P, had retained the ability to sack and pillage a neighboring grocery chain that was flourishing in order to cover up its failing business. We would decry A&P's Scandinavian behaviors as barbaric and immoral. The state, however, has the monopoly on force and coercion, and so its Scandinavian behaviors are held as sacred by various lickspittles of tyrants. Stockbrokers compete with one another to pursue profits and returns, since they will have to lower their own cut in transactions and raise net yields for shareholders in order to draw more potential investors away from competing brokers. They will also have responsibility and investment forced upon them by virtue of the fact that speculation is not prognostication. No deals are ever guaranteed to return profits. If the government of Georgia, as in the case of Chisholm's suit, has spent the money on munitions that had already been expended in war or on soldiers' pay, then the bond could never be redeemed because the bond had no backing except in the spent munitions. The state can only return empty bullet casings and whatever was left of its powder and lead. Or it could raise taxes upon the soldiers that had been paid for their services in IOUs. The fiat paper money substitute is a means that the state has to speed up its own endeavors where the market will only support moderate and slow progress, as viewed by state officials who have other goals in mind for the market's just property for its benefit. The legal precedent set by SCOTUS in the Chisholm case would have set in motion a veritable Ouroboros of predations, lawsuits, restitutions, and predations, betraying the inherent injustice of wealth redistribution and government debt backed by fiat paper issues. Every step that the state of Georgia would have taken to pay Chisholm's debt would result in another court case, since the next person receiving the state's debt certificate in exchange for what was paid to Chisholm by order of the Supreme Court could, in turn, sue that state government once again. Sooner or later, the courts would have tired of this process and demanded that the state of Georgia quit engaging in fraud and wealth redistribution the last plaintiff in line would have to go unpaid or be paid personally from the ruling party's private accounts. The 11th Amendment in 1794 prevented this inevitability by abolishing the ruling of SCOTUS. The amendment absolved Georgia of its liabilities and dispensed with the potential for every other state to be held to that ruling. The questions surrounding the debt default by the states had finally found their answers by allowing states to shirk an admission that government is inherently bankrupt and that its debt obligations are instruments of fraud. In the end, the state of Georgia settled with Chisholm's party in audited state certificates, namely loot, which were a claim upon somebody else's property at a much smaller sum than originally pursued. Curiously, This same ridiculous economic design is what drives fractional reserve banking, yet another form of fraud enshrined by law. The states acted so swiftly to ratify the 11th Amendment and to shirk their debts precisely because the ratification of the Constitution had consolidated states' debts into a socialized pool over which the federal government now had control. If the central government demanded payment by the bankrupt states to the holders of state debts, then the central government, as the holder of state debts and the prosecutor of state debts, would have enormous power over the most indebted states in the Union, the New England states. 
New England states had ratified the Constitution precisely because they desired the socialization of their own debts over states who had not bankrupted themselves in the Revolutionary War and who had the means to produce capital goods sufficient to restore the American economy and to pay off those debts, namely the Southern slaveholding states. Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Beginning in the year 2017, www.culture-anarchy.com will be podcasting issues of The Dial, our literary magazine, for audio consumption at the end of each month. Please send us poems and short essays for review to see your work in our electronic publication and to hear it promulgated throughout the world. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, and levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. As we conclude our eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, stay tuned for our new series, which attacks the root of cultural Marxism in the Collegiate Humanities, a rationalist critique of deconstruction demystifying post-structuralism and Derrida's science of the non. Visit us at www.culture-anarchy.com to view our submission guidelines. Whenever a historian begins a sentence with the Founding Fathers, treating the nation's founding cabal as a unitary voice of political reason, the reader should immediately disregard what follows. The Constitutional Convention was an argumentative affair. Problems like slavery, taxation, debt assumption through socialization, currency manipulation, representation, and religion were hotly contested and the solutions achieved by Madison's proposed separation of powers have never shown themselves to be final solutions, nor have those powers remained separate. Rather than reaching for libertarian protections of person and property, which would have outlawed the eventual propositions for progressive taxation, religious establishment, and slavery by limiting the state to protection services and incorporated economic laissez-faire for all persons of all colors and sexes, primarily by delegating all powers to state governments or to the people, as long as the states did not violate individual sovereignty for all individuals, the Founding Fathers settled on wishy-washy compromises, fractional individuality, three-fifths compromise and dubious language in order to simply achieve state unification and a loose federalism. The social contract, in this way, 
was actually a union contract achieved through collective bargaining and in no way an actual libertarian document or a binding legal contract. I did not sign it and do not intend to sign it and would be arrested if I attempted to sign it today by breaking into the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. with the intention of binding myself to the contract that purports to bind me and my posterity. Ironically, nobody is actually bound by this supposed contract. Even a more accurate assessment of the social contract does not recommend its acceptance or mark it as voluntary. Namely, that though the structure of the allowable government was canvassed in 1789, every election, two years for representatives, four years for executives, and six years for senators, marks the constitution of a whole new government, which can only deviate from prior governments by means recommended by the previous government unless a new collective bargain is reached. In no way could anybody who does not participate or support in the prevailing establishment, and who in fact votes against each new formation of government, be said to be bound by that document voluntarily. In 1789, various monopoly corporations, the states, engaged in a process of bargaining regarding the overall union structure that would bind them by an even larger monopoly, the federal government. Anyone who did not agree with this, and many did not vote in favor of the Constitution, the silent majority, were silenced. The social contract did not provide for dissent. This is not to say that the Constitution does not enshrine some very important principles. But some of those same principles, freedom of religion and freedom of the press, were features of government under the Articles Confederation in the exact same way that they were features of the Constitution. Those freedoms were present in state constitutions, and so were present in the Confederacy's government because the Confederacy had no religious policy and Congress could not levy taxes except through the states. Remember, the Constitution did not prevent the hampering of the press or the monopolization of the religious market by state constitutions. It only prevented a national church or the nationalization of the press by the federal government. Those principles only became incorporated to the states in 1868. The shared objectives of the Union, then, must be identified in an analysis of the Constitution's formation out of the previously existing social contract, the Articles of Confederation, which was presumed to be perpetual at its ratification, since those shared objectives provide an insight into the reasons that a newer and more centralized Union was even espoused. After all, the Constitution did not mark the beginning of representative government in America. It marked the overthrow of the Articles of Confederation by secret democratic vote of state legislators. By all means, Richard Dawkins might just well have said that the Articles of Confederation were founded in secularism because they limited the taxing power of the national government and left prosecution of religious tyrannies to the states. He would have been correct and incorrect in the same way that he was correct and incorrect in saying the same of the Constitution. The Articles had strictly limited Congress's power to tax and to increase the nation's debts through foreign loans in order to pay off domestic holders of Congress's unpaid debts. The Articles also presented a challenge to the myriad speculators in various states with overlapping claims to Western lands, most of which were completely arbitrary and which were presumed to be a source of wealth to those holding paper claims to the contested land. In order to pay off foreign holders of American debt incurred during the Revolutionary War, namely France and Spain, Congress had to rely upon the expropriations prosecuted by individual states. Since the individual states competed with one another to provide the smallest contributions to the continental debt under the Articles of Confederation, 
themselves already oppressed by their own state debts. Congress sought a greater taxing power through political centralization in order to overcome its free-rider dilemma. In other words, the Articles had limited the powers of the same legislators who then pursued greater power over and control of the public under the Constitution. Insofar as religious establishment remained in several states, taxation tied together the problems of religious representation and national debts. Since the states did not have capital, they could only issue fiat paper currencies in order to bring into their coffers continental notes and commissary notes in order to remit payments to lessen the inflationary debt of the United States to Congress in Congress's own fiat paper currency. This increased the debts of the states while lessening the national debt. Since the states already could not back their own fiat paper issues, as we saw in the case of Alexander Chisholm, the market accepted the state fiat paper issues because they, in their early issues, still numbered in smaller quantity than the surfeit of continental debt certificates, and so did not face as much depreciation, at least not yet. If continental notes were in greater circulation in one state, say Massachusetts, than another, say Georgia, then the state of Massachusetts would incur greater debt obligations than Georgia, both in the national picture and in local governance. This is especially true when we consider that any medium of exchange, be it a commodity money or a fiat paper issue, is valued in concert to the goods and services that it can purchase, and that goods and services do not automatically increase when the state official turns on the printing press. If the debt were socialized through a new constitution and the power of taxation were shifted to the national government, then the states most sacked with continental and state debts could spread some of their misery over happier states with lesser debts. The miserable states could relieve themselves of a great burden by increasing the power of the central government, and the flow of goods and services would find new outlets in concordance with the new incentives created by public policy. If the happy states over whom this misery was spread subsisted by the misery of their own oppressive labor regulations, say, slavery, then the compromise to be reached was hedged with the recognition that the problem of slavery was less important than a sovereign debt crisis, and that state governments were less interested in the plight of the slave and individual liberty than in the socialization of debt and the centralization of the state. If the progenitors of this moral trade-off were to personally benefit from the assumption of state debts and payoffs to be made in debt speculation, then in no way could one argue that the Constitution marked a disinterested reconstitution of government in the national interest. One thing to note, in glancing back upon the Constitution, is that its much-lauded balance of powers was quickly destroyed when Alexander Hamilton expounded the necessary and proper clause of Article 1, Section 8 when pushing for a central bank in 1791, and that the federal judiciary was given a monopoly privilege over the correct interpretation of the Constitution in Marbury v. Madison in 1803. And it must always be remembered that the secular constitution was binding only upon the federal level until 1868 when the Republicans unconstitutionally forced through the 14th Amendment without a three-fourths state majority. Footnote. After the 14th Amendment was defeated in the 1865 vote, the Republicans passed the Reconstruction Acts of 1867. These acts divided the southern states into five military districts, and the southern states were required to vote for the 14th Amendment under the military dictatorship of the North. 
Northern generals and their provisional governments oversaw the redrafting of state constitutions, which were then submitted to federal review. And when Southern politicians refused to take state tests for allegiance, faith in the central government, or to kneel to the federal demand for fealty, they were removed from office and replaced with people who would profess their faith in the central government. When President Andrew Johnson complained of this tyranny and vetoed the legislation because of its unconstitutionality, the Republican Congress overrode the vetoes and placed a check on the Supreme Court to keep it from intervening in the matter. At best, what we can say, with clear theoretical and historical accuracy, is that the representatives of the states finalized, when touching upon the subject of religion, an amendment to the Constitution that prevented any one state church from expropriating rival state churches through national governments. They did not disestablish churches altogether. Having a state church is little different than having a national church for the dissident living under it, since its establishment is a monopoly privilege achieved by coercion and expropriation. But having six state churches of varying denominations out of 13 states was certainly better than a federal monopoly, since religions did, at least, face significant interstate competition, even by those who urged strict adherence to a religious policy of laissez-faire. Section 4. Food for Thought. Can secularity be established by constitutional law? If it sounds a little odd to argue that the national disestablishment of churches was agreed to in order to protect state churches, it is sobering to question whether a complete church-state separation could be effected in America even today by means of redrafting the First Amendment to read, Congress shall make no laws and raise no revenues for the support or discouragement of religion and no state shall make any laws or raise any revenues for the support or discouragement of religion, and no city or any government whatsoever that obtains any portion of its revenues by means of public funding shall make any laws or raise any revenues for the support or discouragement of religion. Furthermore, the judiciary shall hear no cases upon the subject of religion, save where they touch upon coercion and violence against person of property, understanding that religion is extrinsic to property rights. Even though the persons involved might claim religious protections to justify coercion and expropriation. Religion shall exist in a free market, and the government shall observe the principle of laissez-faire. The passage of such an amendment would likely be impossible, since senators approving the fix would alienate significant voter blocks who vote by the book or against the book, as well as those who oppose tax exemptions and capitalism in general. Question whether you think that the proposed redrafting that I just canvassed was the original intent of the myriad men, some of whom argued for established churches and wanted some constitutional declaration similar to Iran's current constitution, which establishes Islam, regarding the establishment of Christianity, though perhaps not a single denomination, but certainly not Catholicism, in the Constitutional Convention. And then ask whether you think those same men who argued for established churches signed the Constitution with the understanding that the federal disestablishment applied to state governments and would prevent the spread of state churches by federal intervention and incorporation, or that this was the goal of the Bill of Rights. I am incredibly skeptical that the First Amendment could be redrafted even today, since religionists would paradoxically see it as an attack on religion, since it would rebuff positive religious legislation and religious access to public power. But I think that the phrasing above would completely affect the church-state separation once and for all, since it would be a hands-off policy that would only restrict the state, not the market. Certainly, any perusal of the documents surrounding the Constitutional Convention quickly reveals how entrenched the drive for religious establishment, at local and state levels, was. 
even by those who abhorred a federal establishment mandate. Section 5. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Constitution was a compromise amongst a group of legislators who were attempting to overthrow the then-extant government by contract through a secret vote, and the Bill of Rights was appended to the document to appease the greatest detractors amongst the Anti-Federalists who refused to join the Northeastern states that had already ratified the document without the first ten amendments. One can only imagine with horror the government we would currently have under Hamilton's argument for implied powers of the federal government minus those amendments and their symbolic value. The great irony of American exceptionalism rests in the fact that the slaveholding states pushed for the protections of individual rights in the Bill of Rights and the legitimacy of slavery when bargaining over the Three-Fifths Compromise with free northern states. If there was an inherent logic in the Constitution, it was quid pro quo, and not anything indicative of theoretical consistency. Southern states were notably resistant to religious establishment as a cultural prejudice, and disestablishment proceeded quickly when the prevailing establishment of the Anglican Church fell out of favor because of its treasonous tie to the English monarch that the Americans had so gloriously overthrown. South Carolina and Georgia quickly disestablished the Anglican Church with the ratification of the Constitution, even though the process of disestablishment had been underway for those aforementioned political reasons since 1776. New Hampshire disestablished Congregationalism in 1790 as well, as far as attendance and tithing mandates went. However, the state constitution maintained religious tests and oaths until 1877 that prevented anyone from holding public office who did not profess Protestantism as his particular cult. North Carolina upheld Protestant tests and oaths until 1835 for those holding public office. The state then relaxed its oaths over the next 30 years to include Catholics and other dissenters, with mere general allegiance to Christianity. Jews, for instance, were still excluded from holding office. Connecticut and Massachusetts, on the other hand, maintained their Congregationalist, or Puritan, establishments until 1818 and 1834, respectively. In these two states, attendance was mandatory and compulsory tithing was a matter of public policy. The larger states who had greater debts left over from the American Revolution, particularly in New England, and the southern state of South Carolina, desired complete participation in the ratification of the Constitution so that they could socialize their debts, spreading them over states that had seen relatively little combat in their borders, namely, southern states other than South Carolina, and had not hyperinflated their paper currencies as payments for conscripted goods and men, or floated as many bonds, promises to pay interest on purchased debt through future tax monies, to fund the war. Many southern states had long since retired their war debts, or at least a significant portion of them, at a loss. The loss here was a loss in government prestige and centralized economic control in the face of depreciation and default of fiat paper money substitutes. In sum, the slaveholding states accounted for roughly 16% of the debts assumed of the federal government under the Constitution and its 1790 Assumption Plan and a large portion of those debts had already migrated into the hands of northern speculators. What this means is that savvy speculators in northern states bought up the IOUs originally issued by southern states as a hedge against their own state's inflation, hoping to turn those IOUs into a source of future wealth if the central government decides to back those IOUs by a national edict. As Scrip was retired by the southern states, 
a speculator could purchase Southern notes at a premium, since the Southerner could no longer fight the Scripps depreciation as commodity monies competed with Scripps. A national tax machine that could fund individual state debts was a powerful means of enriching oneself at the cost of a fellow citizen and his slaves. Unfortunately, most contemporary commentators on the war debt confuse government bonds and the debt assumption as the capitalist plan of Hamiltonian finance. Government bonds, which are speculation in government debt and its growth as a general expropriator of private property, especially capital, are, as Frank Chodorov once wrote, the kind of patriotism that motivated the money brokers of the Middle Ages. Once they invested in their king's ventures, they could not afford to become lukewarm in their fealty. As such, bonds purchase submission to the government. Bonds are backed by capital expropriation, not a rate of return on capital invested in the marketplace. And when bonds cannot be sufficiently backed by expropriation when they reach maturity, for example, the market fights back and scales down government expenditures, or bonds depreciate as the government's credit gets rightfully downgraded, then the government inflates its currency, namely by issuing more government debt in paper money to pay off its debt in bonds. This scheme can in no way be confused with private ownership of the means of production, namely capitalism. It is fraud, plain and simple, since the government does not earn income. It takes its imaginary income by force. Inflation is the more sinister of the two, since it allows the state to raise its expropriations without voter consent. While one can argue that debt monetization was a necessity to prevent regression into civil strife, or to create the illusion that victory in the revolution was possible, and thus forward arguments for that cause, one cannot argue that the fraudulent enterprise does not constitute fraud just because, historically, it is what happened, and because that government is still the government in power. The war debt loomed heavy upon Congress under the Articles of Confederation, and the weak taxing powers of the new nation prevented the establishment of an American empire because the states could decide to answer or delay calls for payment at their leisure. In fact, the states competed with one another to offer the smallest contribution to the national debt, since the tax collectors who were in supply already have very little demand at the price Congress had declared through annual quotas. The problem here was treated seriously enough that James Madison actually suggested that the military should be sent to delinquent states to back up the prosecution of Congress's extortions. This was easier to propose in a state like Virginia, since Virginia sank its debt rather quickly compared to the financial quagmire caused by fiat paper issues in New England. The military would not, it is assumed, have been sent to Madison's home state. This was virtue signaling of the first order. Tax revolts also limited the national government's income before the Constitution, since the states had to prosecute their expropriations themselves to help pay off the national debt and in varying degrees. If the states were to lose their quarrels with the citizenry, either in battling tax rebels or in a loss of public opinion by seizing properties outright for tax delinquency, then the funding of the national debt would further elongate repayment of debt holders and foreign investors. The national government could not pay its creditors, who were the bondholders, but it did not wish to admit this. The nation was poorer than the custodians wished it to be perceived, either for fear of national security or fear of international embarrassment. But given that the United States had just rebuffed the most powerful empire in the world at that time, it is difficult to credit the former position with much sympathy 
and easier to credit it with much propagandizing. Since the national government was limited in taxation to what the states individually remitted, the states had a shorter time preference for paying off their own debts compared to the national debt, which only lengthened the repayment period of debts accruing to France and Spain. Indeed, it was precisely because the relatively debt-free slave states had capital at hand, even measured in human beings, by which to pay the debts of the northeastern states, that union was prized above individual liberty in the Constitution's ratification. Contrary to Alexander Hamilton's notion that a robust public credit was a blessing when he justified his assumption plan, the federal government's credit was achieved precisely by protecting slavery and compromising the quest for human liberty. And even Hamilton's own abolitionist temper was overruled by his mercantilist and nationalist ambitions. Public credit and the disposition of frontier lands were subjects off-limits to the self-interest of Congress under the Articles of Confederation. But those self-interests found a means to self-enrichment with the Constitution, particularly in the compromises that could then be reached regarding the socialization of debt in assumption, the sale or redemption of Western lands, and the funding of public credit by the Treasury and its new debt obligations. It is no small fact that the majority of public officials and state legislators owned disputed rights to frontier lands that were held back by the structure of the Articles of Confederation. The states were pressured to strike a balance between weak taxation and partial defaults on their debts between 1776 and 1788. These defaults were honest admissions of bankruptcy, further aggravated by the rapid depreciation of state paper money. But the Constitutional Congress refused to default entirely on its debt obligations because it would ruin the long-run plan for a robust public credit that those who had come to constitute the Federalists had in the international arena. States could retire their debt obligations to the central government by printing state money in exchange for continental dollars and specie, and then sending worthless continental notes back to Congress for destruction, while keeping the specie to pay off their own creditors, those holding a particular state's paper debt obligations, colonial scrip. This method of national debt retirement left the further problem of the depreciation of state currencies and how those debts could be repaid without engendering tax rebellions in the states. It was for this reason, prestige and debt socialization, that the federal constitution was canvassed in secret cabal against the orders of state legislators and the American public. The fiat paper currency crisis could destabilize the country's ruling oligarchs, overthrow state constitutions, and thus caused the default of Congress and the repayment of debts to France, Spain, and Dutch investors. After the Constitution's ratification, Congress turned to the printing press and inflationary bonds just as it had done in order to fund the revolution. A new deal was found in Alexander Hamilton's shady enterprise of partial redemption for the continental dollar in 1790 to save America's failing credit. Credit should here be understood in quotation marks to distinguish it from actual credit, the natural rate of interest expressed in individual time preference regarding the voluntary distribution of private property. The failure of America's credit, its worthless scrip, was supposedly aggravated by a perceived weakness in the former central government under the Articles. 
While progressive economic historians who justify central banking and Hamiltonian mercantilism argue that the problem that Congress faced was the existence of state competition and banking and bond sales, much less the market's resistance to state expropriation for the sake of government debt. The truth is that Americans, that is, secessionists and tax rebels, did not wish to be taxed, did not place their faith in a robust and energetic state apparatus, and so had little demand for oppressive government. As long as the states struggled to pay their debts and could not recoup taxes, liberty was flourishing in America. And even while the states and Congress struggled with debt, the economy flourished throughout the 1780s. Those responsible for trying to make fiat paper currencies and government debts work for the American people were dedicated to working against the market, which was actively overthrowing government tyranny and fiat paper currencies backed by government debt. Where governors saw chaos and anarchy because they were trying to circumvent the laws of economics, the market saw the restoration of order. Where the common man was making sense of the world and restoring the basic principles of economy and human welfare, the state was actively overthrowing the pursuit of individual freedom that had sparked the revolution. And so we should treat any historical analysis of the Constitution with incredible skepticism when we encounter those public school and university stories about how the Constitution solved the problems of the Articles of Confederation. The problems had one solution, debt repudiation, which was already underway. For some, the claim that Americans had little demand for oppressive government, in energetic government, will appear absurd because history appears to stand against it. The Constitution was ratified, and the newly centralized tax machine did progress with its ratification, and thus democracy triumphs and the foregoing analysis fails entirely. Didn't our history professors explain to us how the Federalist Papers convinced the public that America needed a more energetic government? Clearly, we the people wanted the Constitution, didn't we? How else could we have it? There is a charm in this objection to my analysis that betrays its bankruptcy and is immediately apparent when once identified. Do we have it? And are we, we? I argue that disbelief in this principle that I have stated, that the devaluation of government in America prior to the Constitution signified the rejection of the Constitution's centralization, is absolutely absurd, and that disbelief ignores the actual structure of democracy. In democratic governments, the small oligarchy in power can silence both majorities and minorities who compete against one another in voting against rival governments, and not necessarily for a consensus social contract and the ruling oligarchy. At the foundation of the democratic social contract is the principle of aggression, not voluntary agreement. To prove the universal truth that I have forwarded, I submit no other evidence than the irrefutable nationwide depreciation of notes, securities, bonds, impressment certificates, and continentals. The fall in the market price, namely, the lack of real demand for an energetic government as represented by scrip, fiat paper notes, bills, etc., backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. The full faith and credit of the United States, we have already seen, rested in its ability to lie to the people, to pretend that it had credit, and to then loot the public in order to fork over what it owed to the original creditor to whom it had originally peddled its lies in the great bond Ponzi scheme. Economic laws describe the reality of human interaction and exchange. 
and depreciation of state scrip, which is a fiat paper money, is the reality of human action in which the medium of exchange, here government securities and paper notes, circulates at a rate lower than the government believes that it should, based on arbitrary state evaluations of its own self-importance. Depreciation of scrip is evidence that the government had no capital supply to back its debts, and that the market was readily calling Congress's bluffs on both the federal and state levels as specie and other commodities competed as currency with scrip. The only means to fight market demand for less government was the passage into law or public policy some federal initiative to redeem scrip at artificially high rates and to then pay off these new quote-unquote creditors, read debtors, through taxes laid upon those who did not demand more energetic and oppressive government, read creditors. Only in this way could the state galvanize enough support to pay its debts by expropriating its creditors, read taxpayers, against their wills. Further depreciation could be fought through higher taxes and price controls, which is exactly what did happen. When rebellions arose to combat this scheme, the state crushed the rebels and forced them into oaths of allegiance to save their own necks. Government-issued bonds and other securities in this way confused who owed what to whom, and historians have, either purposely or ignorantly, mistakenly defined the nation's creditors as those to whom the post-revolutionary war taxpayers owed tribute because those patriotic individuals receiving tribute spent private funds on Revolutionary War activities. This was precisely Hamilton's design in funding the debt, to mix public and private credit and to mask the difference between the two categories of debt. Contrary to what historians tend to write when discussing Hamilton's finance scheme and the special patriotism of bond speculators and script holders, Everyone spent private funds on the war, regardless of political loyalties and the existence of competing securities. Since the government does not produce, it can only spend. Its IOUs and bond sales, which were used to purchase freedom by means of guns, ammunition, rations, and pay for soldiers, could only be repaid by repudiation of the obligation to repay those IOUs. In political rather than economic terms, A better approximation of public support for those creditors, read, tax consumers, could have been achieved only through a slow repayment of the national debt under the Articles, since the weak taxing power of the states could only feed the even weaker taxing power of Congress at a more rational rate of interest than what could be achieved by the short-time preferences of legislators favoring ramped-up public expropriation that was boosted practically overnight by Hamilton's finance scheme for a robust public credit. The growing economy could have repaid the debt in almost no time, and even suffered the loss in prestige by outright repudiation by means of its booming marketplace. This would have simultaneously undercut the utility of any drive for increased government by the Federalist Party and its statist cronies. Had the Articles been preserved, Perhaps the contraction of that much debt might have served a greater public purpose in the long run by discouraging large national debts and the use of both fractional and fiat paper money, which are fraudulent money substitutes, as currency. There were admirable patriots who bankrupted themselves to fund the new government and to alleviate the sufferings of prisoners of war, and many were never repaid dollar for dollar. Ironically, 
This is a principle in accord with the principles of liberty. This claim will be objectionable to the most patriotic individuals, but to support this principle, I forward this hypothetical objection. Patriot A is a young man who takes his father's rifle, powder, and lead, and then musters with a local militia, heading out into the theater of war for a period of two months. He sees action on only one occasion, when his militia runs across a scouting troop of redcoats, during which he fires ten shots, killing three redcoats and foiling the British reconnaissance. He then returns home and resumes his labors in order to save his household from the scarcity of material comforts resulting from his two-month absence from his farm and from the American boycott of British imports and exports, which has depressed the marketplace. Patriot B lends the Continental Congress $500 in specie and bills of credit and is told that he will be repaid dollar for dollar through a debt instrument, nominally a bond, continental, or IOU. Congress purchases $500 worth of munitions and gives Patriot B a paper receipt, and then sends a group of regulars to convey the firearms to rebels at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Patriot B holds on to his receipt. Redcoats ambush the supply chain en route, confiscate the munitions purchased with Patriot B's specie. The Redcoats then pass the armaments off to their own troops for use against the rebels at Bunker Hill. The Redcoats still lose the Battle of Bunker Hill, in part because they lack sufficient reconnaissance due to an ambush of its scouts, which were scattered by the militia of Patriot A. When the question concerning how Patriot B shall be repaid arises, Congress, or a state government by extension, has no means at hand other than the sale of whatever scrap is left of its munitions, and it will necessarily sell that scrap at a loss because it is damaged and used. After all, Congress already spent the $500 in specie upon munitions, and it cannot recover that $500 in specie from degraded or expended munitions. But it shall further be prevented from recovering spent munitions by the fact that it cannot pay men to do so without first issuing some debt certificate to somebody else to go out and collect the scrap. War simply is not a profitable enterprise, and Congress can only expropriate Patriot A and likely Patriot B as well, in order to repay the debt in the originally agreed-to sum that only involved Congress and Patriot B. Ironically, Patriot A has expended his own munitions upon the cause of liberty at his own cost, and he had a greater net impact in the secessionist rebellion than Patriot B, with perhaps the caveat that Congress has deepened its relationship with its international arms suppliers and creditors due to Patriot B's contributions. And perhaps Patriot A's younger brother was shot in the back by a musket first purchased by Patriot B's government, but which fell into the hands of the enemy. It does not matter who supports the revolution, as far as the state is concerned. Since the state only sees its debt obligations, it has no means of judging whether its expropriations are wise or unwise. Let us now suppose that the state of Massachusetts levies a specie tax upon Patriot A in order to reimburse Patriot B. And Patriot A objects to the tax so much, since he has already paid for his own war expenditures in time, energy, risk, munitions, and a younger brother. So he joins a tax rebellion to protest the Massachusetts tax. If Patriot A joins Daniel Shays and the rebels against taxation at the congressional and state levels, because he knows that he has already contributed to liberty at his own cost, 
for which there was no repayment forthcoming or even wanted, then how is Shays's rebellion and unjust rebellion of debtors against so-called creditors requiring a more consolidated taxing power in a central government? Patriot A owes nothing, and Patriot B is owed nothing. He rebels not against capitalism, he rebels against socialism. The confiscation of his wealth by the state in order to redistribute his income to Patriot B. National repayment of personal debts presupposed the abnegation of liberty. Honest default was an admission of the sovereignty of the people because the second generation would not find itself bound by the sinking financial arrears of the first. Congress needed not do anything about the debt. They needed only let the market rid itself of colonial scrip and allow the free medium of exchange to arise once again upon the market. The call for paper money that the states answered was a call by debtors, read, tax consumers, for a state-backed medium of exchange that would drive specie into their own hordes through Gresham's law, especially if the state backed its scrip with increased taxation. Gresham's law states that when a government overvalues one type of money and undervalues another, the undervalued money will leave the country or disappear from circulation into hordes, while the overvalued money will flood into circulation. By favoring overvaluation of debt obligations and scrip, the debtors who speculated in overvalued paper monies could thus pay off their own debts and maintain an economic advantage against the common creditor, read, the taxpayer, if the debt obligations were funded above their depreciated market price. In Massachusetts, for instance, Taxes levied in order to pay off debt holders were to be paid to IOU holders and metals, and not in that state's own issued script, which was rapidly depreciating towards the market price at a tenth of its face value. Those who received interest on their government investments in overvalued script were paid in the undervalued specie obtained through taxation. Only those who lent to the government were able to transact to redeem paper for specie, whereas before the paper entered the market, all transactions were conducted through barter or commodity money, especially specie, exchanges. The speculators in government debt were not ignorant of this economic principle, since script was useless in any foreign transaction until overseas speculators began to dip into government securities market en masse around 1788 to 1789 and were even worthless in many interstate transactions. The government's bonds were profitable for those willing to expropriate their neighbors, through the state debt machine, only if the Articles of Confederation were overthrown. During the Revolutionary War, when specie was scarce and supplies were hard to come by for Washington's regulars, American farmers were willing to sell their produce to the British, who had hard currency with which to pay. The crisis that the Congress faced in the prosecution of war through the employment of regulars was largely a consequence of the currency crisis it had created. While the Revolution was successful, it was not clear that the currency crisis was ever necessary. Debt repudiation would not have jeopardized the success of the Revolutionary War, since it did not do so when various states defaulted on their debts prior to 1789. Debt repudiation would have, on the other hand, ruined the drive for increased government power under the Constitution. The repudiation of public debt was already underway in the depreciation of continental and state scrip, and the state, the necessary evil, was understood for what it was. Repudiation is generally a vocal or written pledge to refuse payment for a debt by a person or body of persons, but depreciation serves much the same role as a gradualist, 
undeclared plan for repudiation. This did not sit well for those who prided themselves upon being the necessary representatives of the evil that existed for the greater good. In 1786, for instance, Congress mandated that the states pay $3,800,000, but it collected only $663 to pay the national debt. Repudiation of public debt has the ring of ingratitude to it, until one looks at, one, what government securities actually represented, and two, what actually did happen amongst the bond and land speculators in Hamilton's finance scheme the year after the Constitution's ratification. The capital expenditures of the Patriot generation had already ceded a diminution of goods to the second generation. And while we may rightly laud that generation's zeal for liberty, its amazing boycott of British goods, and its vast expenditures upon the revolutionary cause, one cannot gloss over the Hamiltonian finance system's conservative counter-revolution, which betrayed the revolution's principles in order to bring a gradualist plan for imperial government to America. Most Americans continued to both contract and pay private debts under the Articles of Confederation. What they objected to was public debt, backed by an energetic tax machine and government paper money. Depreciation, again, is evidence of this fact, and no patriotic historian could ever gainsay this evidence. If America's faith in government was true, that is, true blue, then depreciation would never have happened. History because economics is a study of the reality of human action, and not of mere empirical theories, declares the opposite. Like the various states, the Continental Congress had floated national bonds, and it had hyperinflated its continental dollar during the war. Thus, the central government under the Articles of Confederation, insofar as it could be called such, faced troubles much like those that the states faced. But whereas most states were savvy enough to withhold promises to redeem paper currencies for specie when inflating and committing fraud, preferring only to offer interest returns in specie that would extend the repayment period, the continental dollar was stamped with a national guarantee to fully redeem the notes in specie at an overvalued exchange rate, as defined by the state during issuance, at some point in the future. Every time that the central and state governments tampered with the money supply, Gold and silver disappeared from circulation because Americans knew that the government had nothing to give in exchange. And this gave an appearance of a scarcity of precious metals, as metals moved into private hoards and out of general circulation, thus calling the government's bluff, revealing the fraud, and driving paper money below par. Why would anyone be so foolish to pay his debts in specie, which was constantly appreciating relative to fiat paper, if he could trade in paper notes, which were easier to come by. If the government passed a legal tender law, then any debtor could force his creditor to accept depreciating scrip, making it easier to pay off a debt with the passage of every day as depreciation intensified, even though it became harder to get new credit or to purchase new goods due to the resultant economic depression caused by inflation. Creditors, in the meantime, could not refuse the worthless scrip. Since flouting legal tender laws resulted in a fine that was roughly two or three times the amount that the creditor initially refused to redeem for goods and services. Individuals hoarded their gold and silver as a reserve, traded in specie with foreigners, traded domestically in depreciated notes, and rebelled against redemption because redemption would of necessity carry with it 
the injustice of expropriation and the replacement of specie with depreciating paper in their savings accounts. While revolution was popular, bankruptcy was not. It is easier to buy one's bread with gold than to eat paper, which cannot even buy bread when hyperinflation hits full force, as it did with the Continental. Some resorted to simple barter in absence of notes in order to reserve specie for savings by not spending it. Virginia retired its debts at a depreciated value, but states like Massachusetts, who owned approximately a quarter of the state debts to be assumed by the new central government, in sticking to redemption, pitted the bond speculators, the tax consumers, against the taxpayers. Eventually, $5,055,451 of the Massachusetts debt ended up in Hamilton's program. Of this amount, $347,097 was owed to institutions. The remaining $4,708,354 was owed to 1,480 individual creditors. Nearly half of these creditors were ordinary folk with certificates worth less than $500. Of the monetary total, just over 3% was for them. Following the trail of debt leads us to the fact that roughly 700 individuals shared 96% of that $4.7 million in future tax revenues. Debt accrued into the hands of a minority of speculators who prized expropriation above the revolution's tax rebellion, and they earned interest on their worthless scrip in valuable silver. When assumption and redemption reached the level of national policy, the southern states were rightly suspicious of the northeastern states since the largest debt holders had the biggest claim upon federal taxes that would expropriate southern wealth and move it north into the coffers of the indebted merchants there. While a free market can adjust for wealth transfers, the sudden creation of a medium of exchange backed by taxes created out of thin air would cause massive economic dislocation. A state could declare that it could not redeem all of the notes in circulation, but it could not prosecute the collection of notes in circulation or in reserve, since many notes would pass beyond the borders of a state or remain in private hands. If Virginia had a tight money policy relative to Massachusetts, it made sense for a Bostonian to sell to a Virginia in Virginia's script, even though he was not bound by the state laws there. Black markets work in the same way today in the United States, even around things like cigarettes. Where taxes are most extreme, individuals will look to sidestep them to see if they can make a buck doing so. The Massachusetts man had better odds in Virginia with the Virginian scrip than with Massachusetts scrip, and he had better means of restitution for his services in a state with lower taxes and less inflation. As you will see, the states saddled with the most debts, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and other New England states, were also those maintaining established state churches. It mattered not if they were also free states, outlawing slavery, since the establishment of state churches would, in assumption, be bailed out in the debt socialization by slaveholding states. And it mattered not if the Constitution provided a separation of church and state, since the Massachusetts bailout would tax disestablishmentarian southern states for the maintenance of Massachusetts churches, which preyed directly upon the dissident denominations, and especially the Baptists, and indirectly upon the southern states through the socialization of debt. And for those religious establishments who subsisted by means of taxation, 
Debt assumption was a convenient way to keep from tipping over the coffers and diffusing the steady stream of income filched from the tax machine. In 1788, the marketability of bonds in Massachusetts constituted roughly $1.5 million. In 1791, that expropriationary power quintupled. Absent the assumption plan and the attempt to bail out firstly the federal government and secondly the states and the ratification of the 11th Amendment, minority denominations, Baptists, Unitarians, and separatist schisms would have seen increased pressure to disestablish churches if the state continued to prosecute debt collection from harried minority churches. And remember, churches serve as private providers of welfare when not in the establishment majority. Debt socialization lessened that localized pressure, yet expanded the scope of the pressure and thus entrenched the Congregationalist interests by widening the bottleneck. Although a dissenter could have one's chosen minister sign off on the establishment ties by obtaining a ticket that allotted one's taxes to one's chosen religious leader, one received this allotment at the condescension of the establishment, a theocratic IRS, at its own time preference, and at its own discretion concerning what would be considered proper and allowable as an exemption. The Baptists, who objected to exemption in principle because they objected to the regulation of the spiritual marketplace, suffered confiscation in default of tithes, and they refused to petition for exemptions, whereby the establishment appropriated livestock and actual properties as tribute. After the Massachusetts state constitution was ratified to great protest in 1780, it would not be subject to revision until the mid-1790s, and the squabbling would occur with great anticipation of future revision. Even then, elections in the meanwhile tended to hover around 25% participation from the electorate or below. Americans were perfectly capable of governing themselves locally and had no desire to enrich and empower the elites in Boston or Salem. The voting population tended to increase only when anti-federalists squared off with the federalists, and greater oppression, federalism, threatened market anarchy. Sabbatarian laws during that constitutional interregnum, known popularly as blue laws, attempted to restrict portions of the population from engaging in certain activities and labor on Sundays, including travel, and remnants of those laws remain on the books even today as silly economic regulations throughout the country. Furthermore, the establishment thus worked as a hedge against intrusion into the market by spiritual entrepreneurs, since the barriers to entry into the marketplace would be higher for an itinerant preacher than for an acolyte of an established or minority denomination. What the minority denomination sought was a free market, the natural market price for religious services. Within that laissez-faire position rests the option to decline from participation as well. Atheism is naturally a byproduct of the laissez-faire position. Secularization is a market phenomenon. Progressive secularization, as a state policy, is tyranny. The difference is the difference between a voluntary payment, a voluntary tithe, and a tax. Between market demand and a government official's commands. The state of Massachusetts engendered Shays' rebellion by pressing hard for taxation of its citizens at an aggressive rate to be paid in medals even as the state pressed a depreciating currency upon its citizens in order to lead the vanguard in paying off the national debt. Citizens who were already saddled with debts caused by the diminution of capital accumulation, hence the post-war depression and recovery, fought their so-called creditors who espoused programs redeeming the state's IOUs at more than the market rate. Chase's Rebellion, as aptly chronicled in Leonard Richards's Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's Final Battle, 2002, was not the agrarian debtor rebellion that historians have uncritically engaged over the past two centuries, 
when treating of the skirmish for five seconds in passing on the way towards discussing the Constitution. The taxpayers of rural Massachusetts, fed up with the political elites in the state legislature in faraway Boston, rose up against the tax collectors when the legislature refused to hear their complaints as creditors regarding their own inability to pay state debt redistribution to private debtors in precious metals. The rebels shut down the courts and enacted the tax rebellion of the revolution once again. What was at play, at the bottom of things, was a monetary crisis and the awakening of the rebels to the fiat paper currency cheat. The former Major General of the Continental Army in the American Rebellion, Baron von Steuben, writing under the name Belisarius, seems to have grasped the correct interpretation of the phenomenon when he cautioned his patriot brethren that the central government need not interfere with this tax rebellion, since it was a just rebellion against a corrupt, moneyed oligarchy that was acting against the public interest through the state's debt machine. Had the Americans not just rebelled against Great Britain for much the same reason? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. Thank you for tuning in to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Subscribe, leave us a great review, and share this podcast with your friends so that we can continue to bring you the best in audio content. <laughs>